and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jude Rogers. With all the tumult in politics right now, it's easy to forget the real big story that is affecting the entire planet, climate change and especially the collapse in biodiversity. Some 40% of plant and animal species are at risk of extinction, according to research by the Royal Botanical Gardens in Kew, and it's not just an issue of conservation. The insurance firm Swiss Re warns that a fifth of the world's countries, including Australia, Israel, South Africa, India, Spain and Belgium, are at risk of their ecosystems collapsing because of the destruction of wildlife and their habitats, with consequences for £32 trillion of global GDP that depends on biodiversity. Farming nations with fragile ecosystems like Pakistan and Nigeria are also particularly at risk. So what are we doing about it? One way is to reverse global deforestation through the UN's Trillion Trees campaign, a joint initiative between the World Wildlife Fund, the Wildlife Conservation Society and BirdLife International. And its chief scientific advisor, climate change ecologist Thomas Crowther, is here today to tell me about it. Hi, Thomas. How are you doing today? Hi, thank you so much for having me on. You're very welcome. So let's talk about the Trillion Trees campaign. It's a very ambitious campaign being led by your lab, the Crowther Lab, in conjunction, as I said, with BirdLife International, the Wildlife Conservation Society and WWF. Its aim is to reverse global deforestation, as I said, which would have a huge impact on climate change. Can you tell us, though, why reversing deforestation is so important? You know, what will happen to our lives in 10, 20, 50 years if it isn't reversed? Well, simply put, I think most of us understand that trees and vegetation captures carbon from the atmosphere and they store it in their vegetation and also in the soil below our feet. So when we lose ecosystems like forests, we are directly emitting carbon into the atmosphere that can accelerate climate change. So if we can prevent these losses, we can literally prevent our emissions of carbon into the atmosphere. But at the same time, the biodiversity that exists within these within those ecosystems provides thousands of other services like clean air, clean water, foods, medicines, and all sorts of resources that are necessary for human survival. So preventing the losses of those ecosystems is not just essential for climate change. It's essential for all of our ongoing livelihoods. So obviously lots of us through you know, the last 10, 20 years have read headlines about the devastation of the Amazon rainforest. But environmental degradation goes much further than that, of course. You know, for listeners who might know the bigger picture, but not the smaller details, um, can you describe how and why de- deforestation has accelerated in recent decades? So with a growing human population, there's a growing need to use Earth's resources for our livelihoods. And I think it makes sense that that has been tracked by a growing use of forests and and natural ecosystems. Now, a lot of that is for local landowners who need to make the most of, uh, who need to have economic benefits from the the land that they work with and, and that they live on. But There's also a huge amount of of deforestation and ecosystem loss associated with massive industrial farming and agriculture. Uh, Agriculture now accounts for about 75% of the land surface, which is understandable, but uh, sorry, that's 75% of the land's uh, surface that, that can support vegetation. And it makes sense to support this growing human population. But there are so many ways that we can improve the efficiency of agricultural practices and try to minimize the, the intensity of the impacts that happen across the world so that we can limit that, the clearing of new land and the degradation of natural ecosystems that survive, as well as improving the efficiency and carbon sequestration that can happen within agricultural practices as well. 
Now, you know, your work is obviously about looking at very ambitious ways to reduce carbon emissions, you know, having conversations with international companies, governments. Um, but this is interesting, this idea of large scale rewilding, you know, rewilding is a very fashionable term of late. You know, um, it's not just about trees, is it? It's about other things. You know, your uh, lab is looking into soil carbon, grasslands. Can you tell us a little bit more about those other elements in the mix? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're, you're very right that, that there's specific terminology in this restoration movement that that can um, send people in different directions. And many people talk about tree planting or reforestation or even afforestation, where it's uh, the planting of trees. But that doesn't necessarily get the point that we need to restore biodiversity. It's not just putting trees in the ground. It's not just the spreading of monocultures of, of trees that can destroy biodiversity. Actually, what we do want is the rewilding of nature, the, the recreation of biodiversity so that we can have all of the, the magic that biodiversity brings, but all of those incredible ecosystem services that I mentioned, like clean air, water, food, medicines. And it's only when we have a healthy biodiverse system that we also lock away that carbon in sustainable ecosystems that last for a very long time. So it really is the the reintegration of biodiversity in wetlands, grasslands, peatlands, and forests, and all other ecosystems that we need to do responsibly, not just plant trees everywhere and anywhere we can. So I'm quite interested in where you come into this mix as somebody who is passionate about this. Now, your route into the work you do is, you know, unconventional in some ways, but, you know, really inspiring. You know, you grew up in small rural town of Rhythin in North Wales. You know, you had um, you have dyslexia, which made your journey into academia quite different to some people um, in your field. And you you got into um, got interested in ecology because of a particular teacher. Can you tell me a little bit about your own drive behind this? Yeah, it, it is interesting. I think my background is a little bit unusual for, for the academic position that I'm in. Uh, I was always fundamentally interested in biodiversity, so I knew I wanted to work on this topic. But yeah, from my, you know, the, the relatively smaller community that I came from, I think a lot of the focus was on the, the very detailed interactions between fungi and insects in the soil. And this was a very local sort of mechanistic detailed understanding, which might be a little bit different from the the sort of scale that many of my fellow fellow researchers come in at if you want to save Earth's biodiversity you often start with satellites and looking at the top down so i think starting from that slightly different perspective did give me a, a sort of a unique insight into the process but as you mentioned the sort of supervision that i got from this mentor uh, uh, professor heaven jones in cardiff university really turned me around because i was at a stage where dyslexia was making academia very difficult. I was in undergraduate university and really struggling, I would say, to keep up with the reading and the writing assignments. And it was really him that sort of saw potential in my work and also saw the enthusiasm that I have for academia. And simply by, I don't know, empowering me, giving me that encouragement to, to sort of follow those dreams, even if it is, even if I am frustrated by certain aspects of the work, that sort of empowered me to get involved in the process. And I think that really helped me to sort of step beyond the, the very localized detail work that I was doing at the time to start thinking bigger picture and try to get a perspective on global ecosystems. So I really, yeah, everything I, you know, everything I do is it goes back to those times, I think. So obviously, you know, you go on from Cardiff, you end up uh, 
you know, this is a, just shooting through your academic career, you end up doing um, postdoctoral work at Yale University in the States. And, and this is where you hit on the idea of counting the world's trees as a way of assessing how many more we needed to combat climate change, which got international attention. You then set up your lab funded by the Dutch retail company, um, DOB Ecology, and you now advise governments, large companies and non-profit organisations. And a lot of this happened when you're still in your 20s. That's right, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it is. And I, and I do think, as you said in the last point, it, a lot of that comes from the empowerment that you get from a, a really good mentor that set me off on the right direction. I do think dyslexia was useful for sort of having a different perspective on things. But yeah, I was also very fortunate with the, the you know, the, the people that I interacted with and the progression that I had. I had, after a wonderful mentor in Cardiff, I then at Yale had this, you know, really excellent mentor called Mark Bradford at Yale, who was also brilliant at bringing out the best, you know, best in research. So I was lucky enough to, to progress quickly. But I think it all comes down to having, a, I think I've always had the single unified drive to really try and contribute to this, this message and this topic, because I do believe in it very, very strongly. Your July 2019 paper on global tree restoration potential was what made the biggest splash in the you know, science and nature academic communities. Can you tell us a little bit about that um, and what it felt like when suddenly this message was out there in, in the academic community, but it also connected with mainstream newspapers and it became a big story all over the world? Right, yeah. So once we'd mapped where trees do currently exist, we mapped the three trillion trees, it was then our next step to understand where trees can naturally be restored or where they would naturally exist uh, in the absence of humans. And one of the postdocs in our group, Jean-Francois Bastin, had this brilliant idea to sort of use the same training models and remove the influence of humans. And so that showed that outside of urban and agricultural areas, there seems to be room for about 0.9 billion hectares of land where trees can naturally recover. And we estimated that within that region, if we protected the land for long enough so that those trees would grow to maturity, they would support about a, th- about a trillion new trees that could offset up to 30% of that excess carbon that's lingering in the atmosphere as a result of human activity. And that was obviously really exciting for us, mm. but it also led to sort of challenges with the media because once that message exploded in the media, we realized that our excitement wasn't enough to sort of constrain the message. And in fact, it, it came out well in some media outlets, but very, you know, we sort of promoted the wrong message in many other me- media outlets. And some people thought we were proposing tree restoration as the single solution to climate change, which, of course, is absolutely not the case. We need thousands and thousands of solutions to address climate change. So I have to say that the media explosion was exciting, but also quite a scary time as that message slips away from you. Yeah, um, you, you, as you said, you faced a backlash from some elements of the um, nature and science academic communities you know did you learn anything from the things that they were saying or were there some different perspectives in that mix you know even though it was obviously quite a bruising experience for you was there anything that you took on with your work after that yeah absolutely i mean the the interesting thing is you know if you when you receive criticism oftentimes you you sort of want to argue back against that criticism but in this case it was unusual because i agreed wholeheartedly with every piece of criticism uh, <laughs> people were saying this there isn't just one solution to climate change you can't just plant trees and save the world and i absolutely wholeheartedly agree we we need to cut emissions we need to protect the ecosystems that we still have and it needs to also be done in a very ecologically and socially responsible way through through local land managers all over the world and and so this idea of just 
planting trees all over the place to save the planet was is can be a really da- damaging one. And so I took a lot away from that time. And I think it's actually been the motivation for much of the ongoing research that we still have, including the launch of our new organization, not-for-profit not organization called Restore, which is essentially trying to bring that local ecological knowledge to the people on the ground to empower them to promote biodiversity in the right ways all over the world. So I do think all that criticism was very useful and empowering to sort of get the messaging right and to steer the research in the right direction. So you've said that um, you know, you're directing attentions towards local organizations and people who can look at these things locally you know where I live um, near the Black Mountains in Wales um, there's a I live about five miles away from a hill called Bryn Aru um, which has had the legend stump up for trees carved into the kind of side of the hill that uh, is still there now kind of um, you know a couple of months on kind of disappearing slightly as obviously nature takes this course but um, you know, this has been happening a lot at local level that you see these little projects popping up I'm interested to know you know what governments are doing to address the need for bi- biodiversity as well you know within the climate change debate when you get to that macro level you know what are they doing and what should they be doing right I think you raise a good point there it, the, the the fact that it is all uh, that there's this huge movement of of small local projects on the ground, I think is the most inspiring thing in this whole process because global restoration does not happen from top-down decisions. It happens from this immense bottom-up movement with people on the ground making the right decisions for their local ecology and for their local livelihoods. And only when that enormous bottom-up movement happens do we do we see see change happening on the ground. But it is right that those local landowners can only make the right decisions given the political constraints of the situation. And so governments have a really strong and important role to play in incentivizing restoration and the promotion of biodiversity within those areas. And that can be through subsidies of certain practices that promote biodiversity. It can be through the direct support of projects on the ground, or it can be through the implementation of policies that that promote products that are sustainable, maybe from agroforestry systems rather than industrial agricultural systems that can really have really powerful impacts on the local communities in, in those countries. And you do see governments starting to get on board with this thinking. And I think there's a growing awareness for the need to get this right. And now that's not to suggest that it's easy and simple. There's a huge and ongoing discussion about how best to incentivize nature-based solutions within within countries. But I think that is going to be a key part in getting this movement going. What should they be doing going forwards from here? I think revising policies to reflect the needs of the people on the ground. It's not, at the moment, policies are very top down. So it's countries might incentivize the planting of trees across huge areas of land. But I think the the policies are slowly shifting towards local landowners and how you can incentivize them making the the best profits and income from their sustainable land management. And that can be through the promotion of biodiversity in an agroforestry system that you're where you're selling your local produce uh, in, in sustainable markets, or it can be through the protection of land so that you can support the biodiversity that can that can um, bring economic benefits in different regions, or just the maintenance of ecosystems to pr- promote soil fertility uh, for agricultural regions nearby. But I think that focus on the local landowner and the local people's needs will be the, the direction that will be necessary for getting this right. So with that in mind, um, in the last month, um, DEFRA and the Office for National Statistics um, published a a report that revealed that public sector investment in conservation has fallen in real terms by 33% 
in five years, which I found quite shocking. Environmental degradation, obviously, is often seen as a product of overconsumption in the world, um, you know, driven by capitalism. But do you think that the austerity drive in the UK has also had an impact? I think it's a really important point. I, it, it does. It's worrying that that funding for conservation has gone down while the funding for restoration maybe has gone up. And that is a really concerning thing because if we don't protect the biodiversity and ecosystems that we currently have, then the planting of new trees or the restoration of new new areas is not going to touch the sides of, of the impact that we're, that we're losing through ongoing deforestation. I do hope that there is an ongoing mindset change in the minds of of, of of countries and governments. And I do think in the UK, there's there seems to be a particularly strong push to promote restoration or conservation efforts around the world. I think it might be too early for us to, be, to have seen those impacts yet, but hopefully through the integration of these policies with the needs of local landowners, I, I think that, that, that there might be opportunity on the horizon to, to turn this around. I'm very optimistic. And it's that optimism, you know, you see through um, the Trillion Trees project online, the messages that are coming out from the crowd that are in general. Now, one thing that excites the, you know, six-year-old mud kitchen enthusiast in me is how you're working to map soil and grasslands, really getting into the, the geeky minutiae. <laughs> I imagine you might have been the same kind of, uh, you know, six-year-old. Um, tell us a little bit more about how your work is developing in that way and you know what we can hope to see from you and your partner organizations in the future yeah it is true i think i absolutely uh, see your point there that, that often the thing that inspires people is the weird geeky muddy stuff you know it's the detail it's the fascinating impacts of fungi and insects on the on the soil processing and somehow albeit it seems like tree planting is the the one that captures people's imagination. I really find that that people get inspired by the fascinating interactions that happen below the ground, and I think that's really important because the soil is not only by far the largest store of carbon on uh, in the biosphere, but it's also the biggest reserve of biodiversity. So if we want to manage you know, pr- prevent biodiversity loss and promote carbon storage on land, the soil is the first and foremost place that we focus and it expands across all terrestrial ecosystems. So it's equally necessary to understand soil functioning in grasslands as it is in forests or wetlands and peatlands. And so that is very much our, possibly our primary focus at the moment is really getting a handle on the vulnerability, susceptibility and changes in soil carbon stocks that happen as a result of climate change. We see that warming is causing losses of carbon from the soil into the atmosphere, but also as a result of land management. So we see that restoration can lead to the accumulation of soil carbon. And we're we're trying to get a global picture of those processes so that we can really start to understand soil carbon changes and biodiversity changes that go alongside all around the world to guide effective land management decisions. Fantastic. Now you're, you know, 34 years old, you had only a short part into your career. I'm wondering, you know, what would be your dream in 10, 20, 30 years um, to see how your work has impacted on the world in which we live? I think there's two aspects that I'd love to see change. First, I'd love to see more and more and ever-growing attention for nature-based solutions and for the protection and revitalization of biodiversity around the world. But the second one is to see it actually happening on the ground, to actually realize the huge potential that there is for these nature-based solutions by empowering local landowners all over the world so that they have the information at their fingertips to be able to make the right decisions for the ecology of their region and for the communities in those regions. And if we start to see that happening, once it becomes 
economically and socially viable, then rest, there's nothing to stop restoration because everybody loves nature. Everybody loves to support uh, biodiversity. And the benefits that it brings will, will extend far beyond climate change to all aspects of human well-being and society. So I think empowering that bottom-up movement with the right tools to get it right would be my ultimate dream. What a lovely optimistic note to end on in these tumultuous political times. Thank you so much, Thomas, for talking to us. Wonderful. Thanks so much. It was a great, great to meet you and great to chat. Uh, listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with a main roundtable show on Tuesdays. Subscribe and you won't miss a single one. And if you support us on Patreon, you'll get each edition early and without ads, plus smart extras like mugs and T-shirts. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Daily was presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.